0: in a really warm welcome and thank you for making this effort to Darkest Kent. I only live half an hour up the road and it was a nightmare getting here so all you lot who've come from the Isle of Man and Ireland and Scotland and Malaga, you're heroes. I'd also quickly like to thank everyone here at Recovery 2. The trustees and the volunteers have actually made today possible and who've been faithfully taking this course to all corners of the UK and beyond because without them this whole project would have stalled badly. I had a major mental breakdown about three years ago and haven't sort of come out of a darkened room for the last three years. So without them this would have uh, gone seriously AWOL. Anyway, enough of me. Time's short so I want to briefly say something about uh, addiction, the problem, the challenges and the potential solution. Now... There's hardly a day that goes by when there's not some story in our newspapers whereby a celebrity from the world of sport or entertainment has gone into a high-profile rehab. And in the glare of all this publicity, it's only too easy to forget that addiction does not respect age, sex, status, nationality or background. People on the street will probably tend to think, when you talk about addicts, they'll probably tend to think there's this some kind of strange rare breed animal, of which, thankfully, there aren't many of them around. That actually is not true. The majority of people in this country, and by that I would say probably 80-90%, have a serious compulsive behaviour or addiction problem in the UK. Even though smoking is uh, getting reduced in numbers as more people go over to vaping, there are still 9 million adults who smoke cigarettes. There are 1.5 million folk in this country who struggle with anorexia and bulimia. 32 million are obese, like me, due to compulsive eating through stress and anxiety. Addiction to prescription drugs is rife. More people die from over-the-counter medication than there are heroin addicts dying. And then there's the man or woman who feeds off internet pornography for hours on end. Go into any restaurant and you'll see families sitting around the table, each of them on their smartphone. They're not talking to one another, they're on the smartphone. Addicted to the internet. Um, so many people addicted to internet gaming. Social media. Again, I was re- reading an article only this morning before I came about Facebook. And even Facebook acknowledges it's addictive. And the majority of people on Facebook cannot give up. And then there's compulsive shopping and habitually overspending that ruins lives. And finally, Gambling. It's probably the number one threat in the addiction spectrum, I would say, today. According to the industry regulator, more than two million people in the UK are either problem gamblers or at the risk of full-blown addiction. That's the industry itself saying this. The report by the Gambling Commission estimates that the number of British over-16s deemed to be problem gamblers has grown by a third in the last three years. Gambling turnover in this country is currently £14 billion a year. £14 billion, that's £38 million a day. Because it's never been easier. I mean, I could actually be doing this talk now and quickly stick a bet on the Next England International if I wanted, with just a press of a button. So, the challenge. Well, there are numerous challenges. You know, we're all aware probably of the problem because many of us here have been involved in some kind of addiction ministry for a long time. But what is, I think, the main challenge? There are numerous challenges. I think the main challenge is this. In my opinion, one of the most dishonest organizations on the planet is the church. We call ourselves the bride of Christ, but that bride also happens to be a bit of an old tart. You know, we passionately, don't we? We passionately believe in truth and holiness when actually, from positions of leadership all the way through our congregations, we are often leading lives of secrecy and dishonesty. Many of us who attend churches are a bit like those whitewashed tombs that Jesus talked about. We have areas in our life that we would never want another living soul to know about, and yet we try and give the impression that we're whiter than white. If I was to say that the percentage of folk in our churches were secretly hoovering hoovering cocaine up their noses and burgling houses was virtually the same as the number of people outside the church hoovering cocaine up their noses and burgeoning houses, many people would quite rightly come to the conclusion that the church was living a lie. Well, fortunately, you'll be pleased to know, in this case, what I've just claimed isn't actually true. Church members are not hoovering coke up their noses to the same extent as those outside of the church. However, if I was to say that the percentage of folk in our churches regularly viewing pornography was virtually the same as the percentage of those outside the church using the porn, then many people again would quite rightly come to the conclusion that the church was not working too well and living a lie. Well, the church is not working. It is living a lie because that statement happens to be true. The number of church members, leaders and people in the congregation, using porn is virtually the same percentage as those outside the church using porn. Which actually is up near the 90% mark now. We're not talking about 5%, we're talking about 90%. And we, we can't pretend to be holy by picking and choosing our sins. We long for revival, don't we? Probably everyone here would say that's what we really want. But the sad truth is that's unlikely to happen... While the bride of Christ is knowingly living a lie in many areas of its life. You see, and those on the outside, they look at us on the inside. And what they think is, oh, they're so good. These people are so perfect. They're so well sorted. I could never be like that. And they move on, lost, without hope dejected and rejected and that's if they don't happen to look in and think what a bunch of hypocrites because trust me those outside the church can certainly sniff out a hypocrite when they see one the church will regain its credibility and people will begin looking at christ afresh when they see us being honest about our own struggles When they see that despite our dysfunctional lives, we are still able to stand up and say, this is who I am. This is what I'm like in my secret place. But despite my corrupt inner being, I know that this extraordinary God loves me and is for me. And the miracle is that he's slowly transforming me by his supernatural power into the person i meant to be despite my best and consistent efforts to sabotage that. It's why God could call uh, King David a man after my own heart. He was all over the shop but he never hid his faults and that pleased God. Rob Bell has expressed it like this. You're not alone. Whatever you struggle with Whatever you have questions about, you're not alone. It doesn't matter how dark it is or how much shame or weakness or regret it involves. You are not alone. We have cravings and desires and urges and temptations that can easily consume us and make us feel helpless in their presence. Some of the most comforting words in the universe are, me too. That moment when you find that your struggle is also someone else's struggle, you're not alone. And others have been down the same road. I think the challenge for everyone in the church, for leaders and for members of the church, is to become that me too church. Put the lying away, put the pretense away and be honest about our faults. Difficult? Yes. But if we really believe in the grace of God, it should not be an issue. And I think that's something we need to aim for. So that's the problem. And one of the challenges, what's the potential solution? As many of us will know, we embark on an addictive course of action to medicate our troubled feelings. The comedian and actor Russell Brand, great book. If I was writing the recovery course today, I would be nicking great swathes out of this book. If you've only got a tenner, buy this, not Justin's book, get this one. <laughs> <clears throat> anyway, Russell Brand, who was a heroine and crack addict for many years, uh, a number of years ago, he wrote this in a newspaper column. Drugs and alcohol are not my problem. Reality is my problem. Drugs and alcohol are my solution. I look to drugs and booze to fill up a hole in me. The TV chef, Nigella Lawson, speaking about her cocaine and marijuana usage said this, I don't, have a prob- I don't have a drug problem. I have a life problem. When we feel anxious, fearful, depressed, stressed, consumed with a sense of self-hatred. When we have a life problem, the quickest way to abolish these feelings is to use something that makes us feel better. Alcohol, pornography, drugs, gambling, social media, anything we think will help us feel better. And society and the church are crammed full of folk who self-medicate in order to feel better. In common parlance, food writers bang on about recipes for comfort eating. People get stressed and talk about the need um, for shopping therapy. Leaders inside and outside the church look at being a workaholic as a virtue and not a vice. Every weekend there are golf widows. Because their spouses spend every waking hour, come rain or shine, out on the course. Everything has to stop in order for us to indulge our hobbies. It could be anything, the gym, yoga, fishing, jogging, eating, alpha, prayer meetings. You name the hobby and the majority of society does them obsessively, including Christians. Now, I'm not saying hobbies are a bad thing because clearly they're not. We all need to relax. We all need that, if you like, day of rest where we can take a break from life's stresses. And hobbies do that brilliantly. But there's a very narrow dividing line between a beneficial relaxing hobby and a mildly destructive, possibly becoming a highly destructive, obsession that is used to medicate the dark stuff within I remember I was running a course up at Holy Trinity Brompton and we had men's groups and women's groups and in a women's group of about 12 people half of them were prostitutes and all of them were either on heroin or crack or alcohol. In that group was a little old lady in her 70s who didn't look like a prostitute or a crack addict to me. And I got chatting to her later in the course, and she she was saying, thank you for this course, it is so helping me. And I said, so I hope you don't mind me asking, but what is it that you actually struggle with? Why are you here? And she said, (laughs) (coughs) cross-stitch. And I I tried not to sort of look as though someone had whacked me around the back of the head with a plank, And I said, cross-stitch? So she said, yes, she said, I spend all my time doing cross-stitch. When we're watching the television, I do cross-stitch. When we're going on holiday in the car, I do cross-stitch. When I get on holiday, I'm doing cross-stitch. I've been married for 50 years, and my husband recently said to me, if this does not stop, our marriage is over. (laughs) Now, yes, it's funny, but isn't it tragic? That it had got that bad. And there she was with all these crack addicts loving the course. But that's what I mean about how something that could be a wonderful, relaxing hobby can just, if we're not careful, just get way out the other end. <clears throat> now, we might be a hardcore addict, but many of us, we might, sorry, we might not be a hardcore addict, but many of us are somewhere on the spectrum, if you like. There's nobody that should ever think they're in some way morally superior to an addict, that we look down on them as being sort of lacking in discipline. Lance Dodds, professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, writing in Psychology psychology Today, said this, When addiction is properly understood to be a compulsive behaviour like many others, it becomes impossible to justify moralising about people who feel driven to perform addictive acts. And because compulsive behaviours are so common any idea that addicts are in some way sicker, lazier, more self-centred or in any other way different from the rest of humanity becomes indefensible. Of course those of us who are hardcore addicts, you know, know, we we will argue that our addiction is a completely different animal to your bog standard mildly compulsive behaviour issues. But I would suggest... Only in degree. Of course, all of us addicts will say that we are compelled to use. And that is certainly how we feel. But as the psychiatrist Gerald May says, our addictions can never completely vanquish our freedom. Addiction may oppress our desire, erode our wills, confound our uh, motivations and contaminate our judgement, but its bondage is never Absolute. No matter how oppressed we are by other people and circumstances or by our own internal addictions, some small capacity for choice remains unvanquished. And that's the key. There's always a slightly open door that we can choose to go through, whether it's AA, NA, recovery calls. That is the open door that any of us can walk through. That's why everyone who feels... Overwhelmed in this area, can have hope. The 12-step program and the recovery course have a real and effective hope at their core, and we'll be hearing stories of realised hope throughout the day. I'm going to quickly wrap, uh, wrap up because I know we've got the two-minute silence for Remembrance Day just around the corner. Why are we involved in this work? I would suggest because it's the need, because the need around us is so great and this stuff works this course didn't work i would not be here today we would not be wasting your time this course works it's the gospel in action i want to close with two stories that are examples of why we are doing what we're doing i've been working uh, for the last couple of years part-time at a local village bakery and one day one of our young bakers came in clearly upset his aunt in her early 50s was an alcoholic And desperate for help. And so she went to the GP who referred her to the local hospital for an appointment. Four weeks later she hung on and four weeks later she turned up at the hospital only to be told that the appointment had been cancelled and could she return in a fortnight. Clearly distressed she went home and returned to the hospital a fortnight later. Again The appointment was cancelled without warning, so she returned home again and killed herself. (coughs) If only she had found a local AA group or a local recovery course, I believe she would still be alive today with a very real hope that the life she desperately wanted could be a reality. (coughs) A couple of weeks after this, I received an email from the chaplain at a London prison. I and a friend of mine, a guy called Mike Emmett, who some of you will know, ran the course in this prison every week. And we were always given the inmates that the prison said that they were a loss to do anything with. They tried everything with them, nothing had worked. So our course was a dumping ground for those with no hope. And one of the most violent men I've ever met was a chap called Sticks. And Sticks ran, uh, he, he had done numerous prison sentences for um, violence and he ran a crack house in Ilford. And the reason he was called Sticks was because of his habit of sticking knives in people. So if you looked at him funnily, he would stab you. If someone else didn't like you for any reason, he would stab you on their behalf. I remember the first day he came in, he literally, all the other guys sat down he just stood in front of me staring at me with real loathing in his eyes and we just had a long time staring at one another. Um, And that continued for a few weeks. One day we were having a group discussion and one of the guys asked if one could be addicted to anger. And I told him that I used to be addicted to anger and what a buzz it was when I completely lost the plot. I can't tell you how good it feels when you just completely lose all control. And then, of course, the buzz subsides, and I said that I always then felt this great deal of shame, and this prisoner also agreed. He loved losing the plot, but he always felt ashamed when he did. I then asked everyone else in the group if they recognised this anger dynamic in their own life. And to my huge surprise, Sticks, who had done nothing but silently glower at me for the whole four weeks, slowly put up his hand and recounted a story of how he was walking down the road one day when someone looked at him a little bit funny and as he recounted, so I grabbed hold of him, snapped his arm in half, ground it around and then I tied him to a chair and repeatedly burned him with cigarettes. And then the next day I said to myself, Sticks, I think you went a bit too far there. (laughs) and you could have cut the atmosphere with a proverbial knife. I haven't seen Sticks for four years. I've often wondered what had happened to him. And then out of the blue I received this email from the chaplain at Pentonville. Hi Nigel, had a lovely chat with Michael as he's now known, no more Sticks. He is doing really well and just wanted to call for a chat to say thank you for everything that you did in helping him to get his life sorted. He also wanted to know if you were in contact with me so that he could thank us both for helping to change his life. He has now been out of prison for four years and remains clean and crime-free. He's been working for a freight company since release, loading deliveries, and he's doing ongoing training to progress. He is reconciled with his parents and sister. He has been off all of his medication for depression for over a year. Amazing, considering my first conversation with him took place when he was considering how to take his own life. And he is engaged to his very long-term girlfriend. And he asked whether I would be willing to officiate at their wedding, which actually took place very recently, as he says he doesn't know many vicars. (laughs) And that guy is not a Christian, as far as I'm aware. But you know what? It doesn't matter. He's not sticking knives in you and I anymore. These two stories encapsulate why we do what we do, so that people with no hope and no future can find hope and the new life that they are longing for. For those of you who are already involved in this work, please keep going. Because you're saving lives. For those of you who are considering getting involved, it isn't easy, but by gum, it's worth it. I hope you all enjoy your day, and I think it's two minutes silence now. Thanks a lot.